Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Maria Doulis from the CBC. And we have a little bit of a different episode this week. We are bringing another event coverage episode to you. So what you're going to hear after a little introduction from me and Maria is an event that was held by the Association for a Better New York discussing the city budget. And it included four panelists being moderated by the New York Times's David Goodman, and they included the New York City Budget Director, Melanie Hartzog, Carol Kellerman, the president of CBC, uh, Preston Niblack, the deputy controller for budget under controller Scott Stringer, and Latanya McKinney, the New York City Council finance director. So four major players in the New York City budget, uh, very smart people, people involved in negotiations, and of course, Carol from CBC, the watchdog on the panel, along with, of course, Preston from the Comptroller's Office, who also oversees those negotiations and final products from the Mayor's Office and the City Council. So for today's data point... $89.16 billion, the size of the adopted budget for fiscal year 2019. After adjusting for uh, prepayments in prior years and other reserves in spending, the total value of spending in fiscal year 19 is $92 billion. And so what we'll hear in the discussion is about what kind of an increase that budget represents over last year, what the reserves are um, in that budget versus new spending that was added, um, and other discussions of the, the spending that was included. Yeah, there's some, there's some interesting discussion among the panelists about different risks to the budget, if the spending is going too quickly, the levels of reserves, a few pretty important sort of flashpoints in budget discussions, NYCHA, health and hospitals, you know, some of the sort of distressed authorities that the city budget also helps certainly either prop up or fund or help repair, um, the impact fair fares will have. Yes, distressed authorities and distressed people, because yes. there was also a big discussion at the end about homelessness and how much the city spending on that and whether the, the strategy has been effective or whether the strategy has essentially been to just keep throwing more money at the problem um, without changing course. But I think some of the, the one of the most interesting threads of the discussion was really about how you think about the spending added to the budget, because the administration maintains that it's really investment. We're investment while we have the money. And I think CBC's point, which I think was bolstered a little bit by the controllers, uh, by Preston especially at the end, has been, well, investments mean you get something at the end. And we're not really focused enough on the performance metrics to know exactly whether the investments we're making and how much we're spending on certain things are worth it. Are worth it. And the second point, of course, is then what's the balance between that spending and savings? And are the savings you know, sufficient? And lots of different points of view on the panel about that question. I think that was one of the best questions from David, which is, do you want to put even more money aside so that the governor, the state legislature, even the federal government says, New York City's got this huge su surplus, these big reserves, and the governor has already done that, right, and said they can afford to chip in more. Back when the city was distressed in the 70s and 80s, the state chipped in more. Now the city's doing really well, and the rest of the state isn't doing as well, so the city can chip in more for the MTA and put more money towards NYCHA and make up some costs if the state reduces funding for child welfare and things like that. So that was a very interesting part of the discussion. We won't spoil the answers to, to that question for you, um, but, but to your point, 
one of the most other interesting things, and, and everybody should listen all the way through because this is towards the end, is this question of performance metrics is obviously something CBC has been hitting a lot, is that the city doesn't show well enough the bang for the buck services and programs. Right. And, you know, there's a, there's a great Ben's right listen through and listen to the <laughs> distinction between the perspective of, oh, we need to deliver services to people that they can feel and see in their communities. And there's a responsibility to make the budget work for people, which is absolutely right. Versus, you know, the other perspectives which say, yes, that's true. But if people knew what the cost of some of these services was, were, you know, was, were, um, they would can, you know, rethink what their priorities are between these services. So it's, it's really important. And this goes back also to the, and I know CBC has sort of pushed for this, and we've covered this at Gotham Gazette, is there's, there's been this push to sort of adjust the mayor's management report in this direction. Mm-hmm. And that's really where some of this should come. I mean, the budget and the mayor's management p- report should really be more closely aligned. It's fairly obvious to anybody who really looks at these things, but of course, city officials are sometimes hesitant to do that because they don't want to be held as accountable. They don't want to put all the numbers there in black and white. And that's really where this should should be heading. And that's why, of course, obviously some of the work CBC does, the controller's office, even some of the battle between the city council and the mayor's office can get at some of these questions. Yes. At one point, the response to saying there should be a greater link between the budget and the mayor's management report was literally to put a hyperlink in the mayor's management report back to the budget. That was the response. Um, but, you know, that's, this is also like an evolving process. I mean, I was on a task force to redo the MMR that I think took some great steps a couple of years ago in reforming it, but it's a document that has to evolve. But it's also a document that I think needs to be more focused on outcome metrics. And we've done work documenting that that's not really the case. And, you know, you can take an example of, a, of one of the mayor's signature programs like Thrive, right? something he's really proud of, something the city has put resources behind, but where are the outcome metrics to say, hey, we are really improving the services for the people we're targeting for these services? And what's the cost of that per person served, right? It's a lot of these unit costs, what we call per you know person served, per mile of road paved that's missing, that is really essential to an evaluation of the quality and the level of service. Right, it's not just about here's the money we're doing and here's how many people we're serving or how many roads we're paving. Well, what happens to those people that you're serving, or how long does the road repaving last? You know, what's the? It's figuring out what those right metrics are to then show that you can then also compare over time and do all the right things you're supposed to do when you do data analysis to see if you're investing in the right places and not just throwing more and more money around. Okay, so we'll stop preaching mm-hmm. to the, our, our own choir here right. um, and let you listen to the discussion. It's an interesting discussion about the budget. It jumps around a bit, but you know it's hitting a variety of important topics. And of course, on previous episodes of the podcast and future, we'll be digging in more on the individual threads and themes and agencies involved, questions around the growth in the budget, the headcount of city employees, what to do about NYCHA, et cetera. Speaking of NYCHA, We obviously had a recent episode uh, going in-depth about CBC's recent report on NYCHA and the NYCHA needs assessment that came out. Uh, And then we also, the MTA is a big question about how much city money needs to be invested there in conjunction with the state, of course. And last, uh, we've had a recent episode on, on that as well. So enjoy the discussion. Stay tuned for further episodes from us. Thanks to Angela Pinsky and to Steve Rubenstein for letting us use the event as our podcast episode. And we should also say this is the 50th episode of What's the Data Point? So it's quite a big milestone. 
Thanks for listening for us and staying with us on this ride. And shout out to our producers yes. who work on this tirelessly behind the scenes, Kevin Medina and Javon Rice. So yes, thank you very much to you. Good point. Thank you. Good morning. So I'm here because I don't understand the budget, and I'm hoping everyone here can explain it to me and, and ex through that explain it to you. I mean, I think that's sort of, as a journalist, that's my role. Um, we, as uh, Steve said, you know, the budget is $89.2 billion for fiscal year 2019. That's a number that's almost obsolete the moment it is announced. You know, um, as the year goes on, there are costs that are added, there are revenues that, um, that come in, and this year's budget projected for, for fiscal year 19 is about um, 4 billion more than it was at this point last year, and already they've revised up the budget from fiscal year uh, 18 to 89.5. So already their last year's um, spending is 300 million more than they projected for the coming year, and I don't think anyone believes that we're going to have a 300 million dollar uh, budget cut in the coming year. So this is how we have to understand the budget as a kind of fluid thing that's always evolving and always growing. Um, the controller and the IBO have already sort of put out their estimates of where the budget's going to go with a lot of prepayments and reserves, and they see it going to 92 million, billion, excuse me, and within five years we could see it topping $100 billion, which is quite a lot of money. Um, now, a huge part of this expense is not on, you know, lavish uh, new buildings or on, on sort of programs that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, are immediately visible to New Yorkers. These are on mostly uh, people that work for the city. And so some of what we'll um, talk about today, I think, is to the growing headcount in the city and, and where that money has gone and whether that uh, spending is um, you know, being done judiciously or um, you know, and, and is necessary as investments in the future of the city, which is growing dramatically. Um, you know, at, at this time, there's 298,000 full-time workers in New York City. That's the most people that have ever worked for the city full-time, and that's not counting all the people that work for the housing authority, all the people that work for health and hospitals, all the part-time people that work for the city. Um, so you quickly get closer to 400,000 people. Um, now, you know, everyone is fond of saying that budgets are a statement of values, and so one of the things um, that I want uh, to sort of ask the panelists is what are the values that we see? Mayor de Blasio has presented his executive budget as a vision of fairness, and he's talked about wanting to create the fairest uh, big city in America, and so what does sort of fairness mean in the context of a budget? Now, another favorite quote of the mayor that I like around the budget is something that he said on, on the Brian Lehrer show, I think it was last year, it was around budget time, and there was this... Um, uh, small sort of picayune part of the budget that had been, uh, you know, cut in the uh, proposed budget, and he disputed the idea that it was cut because it was part of the budget dance and it was going to get, you know, sort of restored later. And he said to, he advised um, anyone, this is a quote, anyone who wants to understand the budget to look at the budget and not go through a journalistic outlet to understand the budget. And I thought this was a great idea because the budget is online, as he pointed out, but then I went and read the budget and I didn't really understand it, and so I called on folks like our panelists to try and understand it. So I'm hoping that they can sort of shed that light, because as many of you probably have done before, you've gone to uh, the website and looked at OMB's numbers, and, and they're quite difficult to understand, um, even for someone who's expert. So um, without further ado, I wanted to introduce uh, Melanie Harzov, who's going to explain some of it to start out. So thank you for the introduction. I'm going to stay right here. Sure. Um, and I will start off by saying that Carol told me, can I really keep my remarks to 10 minutes? But I told her if she's ever seen me at a city council hearing, I'm pretty fast, um, which Latanya can attest to. Um, so first of all, good morning to my fellow panelists, Carol, Latanya, and Preston. For the benefit of the audience, we work with the council, fiscal monitors, and the controller's office on a daily basis. 
We share the goals of keeping New York City on strong financial footing and improving the lives of all New Yorkers. The work they do helps our work better. Latanya Press and I have worked with each other for a very long time, and out of respect, I won't say exactly how long, but I will say that over the years, we've developed a close working relationship, and I'm glad that we're sharing the stage today. And Carol, as budget director, I've worked with you for about eight months. Um, though this is a short time in the context of your tenure at CBC, it's long enough to have seen firsthand why your leadership there has been so important to the city's well-being, and you will absolutely be missed, but I'm really looking forward to the next iteration of work. And I'm sure you won't be too far away from continuing to give me comments on my work. <laughs> um, I also want to thank Abney for inviting me to sit on this panel. For nearly 50 years, this organization and its members have helped guide the city through some very challenging times. Thank you for your deep commitment to the city and hosting forums that explore the complex and important civic issues we face daily. I was asked to give a high-level overview of the fiscal 2019 budget um, before we move on to the panel discussion. So first, let me start with just the framing of, of how we really moved into our budget decision-making process this year. And there were two overarching elements, a strong economy resulting in an increase in revenue, including a significant one-time increase in personal income tax revenue last fiscal year, and the impact of state and federal actions. Quickly on the economy, our employment is above 4.4 million, an all-time high. The city added 72,000 jobs on average in 2019, and the labor force participation rate is near its record high. At the same time, our unemployment rate is at historic lows. The city's economy continues to diversify with educational and health services, professional and business services, and leisure and hospitality driving job growth. The financial sector in represents less than 8% of total employment. Record numbers of tourists are visiting the city. Hotel occupancy, roommates, and Broadway attendance all rose through the start of calendar year 2018. We find ourselves in the ninth year of the country's economic expansion, the second longest in history. And though we believe the economy will remain strong over this fiscal year, there are good reasons to be cautious. In this year's $89.16 billion budget, David, I do not round, 89.16, <laughs> we increased reserves, generated savings, made conservative revenue and debt service estimates, and focused on strategic investments. We increased the already record level of reserves that serve as a buffer for the unexpected. Our general reserve and capital stabilization reserve now total $1.375 billion, an increase of $125 million, thanks to our work with the council during the adopted budget. This year, we added $100 million to the Retiree Health Benefits Trust, bringing it to a record high of $4.35 billion, with $3.6 billion added as a result of actions taken by this administration and the council. Last month, the mayor and I presented the city budget to the State Financial Control Board, and I want to thank the state and city controllers for supporting our prudent approach towards increasing revenues and validating the board's assessment that the city's fiscal position is sound. Our focus on savings continued this year. We generated $2.1 billion in savings across fiscal years 2018 and 2019. This includes more than $470 million achieved through implementation of a partial hiring freeze, including almost $50 million saved by reducing 1,000 vacancies across city agencies. Because of our year-long savings effort and cautious planning, at the end of fiscal year 2018, we were able to make a $4.6 billion prepayment on 19 expenses, leaving years 2018 and 2019 balanced. This year, we also realized $1.3 billion in annual savings related to the 2014 healthcare savings agreement we reached with the Municipal Labor Committee. In June, we reached another savings agreement with the MLC, 
And as a result, our annual healthcare savings will increase to 1.9 billion annually in fiscal year 20 and beyond. These savings will help offset the costs of recently announced collective bargaining agreement we reached with DC 37, the largest civilian municipal union. We will continue to focus on savings throughout the fiscal year and will introduce a new savings plan in the November plan update. As I mentioned, the adversity and uncertainty we face from state and federal governments shaped our decision making in this year's budget process. Last year's state budget imposed $530 million in cuts and cost shifts on the city. This means that one in every $4 of new spending, about 25% of all new city spending in this budget was to compensate for those actions in Albany. We received less funding than expected for education and sustained cuts to social services programs. Challenges from Washington are also substantial. While we remain disappointed in the federal tax bill, we were relieved to see the passage of federal budget in federal fiscal year 18 that averted the catastrophic cuts proposed by the president. We will closely monitor the fiscal year 2019 congressional spending bills for similar actions that would cut the social safety net and harm the most vulnerable New Yorkers. I focused on the expense side of the budget this morning, but I want to highlight a couple of strategic capital investments in affordable housing and economic development that we added throughout this plan cycle. This year, we continue our commitment to NYCHA residents by investing just over $420 million in capital to fund infrastructure repair, including his heating system upgrades. This brings the administration's total investment in NYCHA to $5.1 billion since the mayor took office in 2014. This includes $271 million in expense and $673 million in capital in fiscal year 19 of mayoral funding. The city recently entered a voluntary consent decree with the federal government. We committed to invest $1 billion in capital funds in NYCHA over the next four years and $200 million in the following years for the life of the decree. We also deepen our commitment to Housing New York 2.0, the mayor's plan to create and preserve 300,000 affordable homes by 2026. This $750 million contribution brings our total investment in affordable housing plan to over $8 billion through 2026. Over 109,000 units have been financed under this plan to date. Finally, in fiscal year 2019, we strengthen our commitment to the mayor's $195 million New York Works Plan. This initiative will create 100,000 good paying jobs in 10 years with a focus on growing sectors, including life sciences, healthcare, industrial manufacturing, and technology. Fiscal year 2019 has just begun, and the 2020 budget process is already underway. We will approach next year's budget as we have in the past with a focus on reserves and savings and as careful stewards of the city's resources. Thank you again for the opportunity to be part of this discussion and help frame our conversation. My first question, I'll, I'll try and direct some of the questions, and we can see if, if people want to jump in, um, but at least I'll give uh, everyone a chance to talk first. So, Melanie, the first question, you know, the budget has grown uh, roughly 20 percent under um, Mayor de Blasio. Some see this as a reason for concern. The mayor presents it as strategic investment, and this is essentially what's needed to be done in the city right now to, to meet the challenges that we have. Um, you know, he's added uh, a universal pre-kindergarten program. That was a huge um, part of it uh, in terms of the workforce. We've added police resources and other sorts of headcount at the corrections department. Um, you know, the city last year had this one-time boost, as you mentioned, from the federal tax uh, law, but that's not going to continue. So I guess I'd ask you how, you know, how long or how sustainable is this level of spending in your mind? So I think it's important, important to first frame uh, where our spending has grown over the course of the administration. And while it is true we've made investments into pre-K, I think we all need to remember that when the administration came into office, we had 
labor contracts, all of our labor contracts were expired. And so it, when you look at our growth in our budget, even if you look at the adopted budget of last year compared to this year's adopt, um, in comparison, we've grown about 4.6% overall. That growth is really within line of previous year's growth under this administration. It's ranged anywhere from 36 to 4.7% growth when you're comparing adopted to adopted budgets. But the biggest chunk of that growth is a result of the labor settlements, which are actually backloaded. And so in the out years, which now right when we settled in 2014 and now here we are in fiscal year 19, that's where the growth is the vast majority. The second area is in fact education. We've made significant investments there universal pre-K being one of them. We've also made investments in pedagogues. Um, we've made investments in physical ed, um, science teachers, social workers in schools, all towards the overall goals of the mayor, as you've actually mentioned. And then the other area of growth is debt service. Um, the mayor's made a strong commitment to the capital infrastructure and the need to invest in the infrastructure of the city. And so those are the three major areas of growth within the overall budget. Mm -hmm. So Carol, I want to, you know, given that you've um, sometimes expressed skepticism about um, some of the uh, areas, especially on headcount, but I wanted to ask you, you know, um, for a while, um, the de Blasio administration, really since the beginning of the Trump administration, has been ringing alarm bells about what was going to come from, from Washington. And um, IBO most recently said that the fiscal situation in the city is, you know, stable, at least for now. Um, and so I guess I want to ask you where, you know, if it's calm right now, is this the calm before the storm? And if so, where do you sort of see the storm clouds forming? I'm not a trained economist. And um, there's a saying about trying to forecast, even when you are a trained economist, that economic forecasting makes astrology look reliable. So <laughs> it, 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 it's an art, not a science. But I think it's common sense that the longer the good times last, the closer you are to a time when they will change. And we are now, if if the projections of all of the economists at this table are right, things are going to be great through 2022. That's 151 quarters of economic growth. It's, it's the longest in modern history. It's not going to last that much longer. And it's not about the city and whether there's good job growth in the city and whether the city is a center of activity. It's about what's going on around us. And so when you look at all the things that are going on in the world, um, something's got to give sooner or later. And so I think it's kind of our job to point out that it's probably sooner. And it's not something that we can even identify specifically. I mean, there's a lot of talk now about these uh, yield curves on, on US bonds, and that when the long-term yield curve flattens out, that means a recession is coming, and that's happening. I don't know whether that's going to change now. Some people say, no, this is the new normal. Not great growth, but steady growth. But I think our point and where we differ with the mayor is that um, the mayor has been very vocal about saying, times are good, let's spend on things. And we're saying, times are good. Let's get ready for the place, time when it's not good. And if you don't um, control your spending, and you don't put more aside in reserves, and you don't right-size the amount of debt service you're paying for the time when the debt interest rates go up, then you're going to have to do very unpleasant things 
sort of in an emergency, draconian cuts across the board way, and it would be better to be prepared and do things in a more targeted way. And so I can't tell you exactly when this is happening. I, you know, Mel and I have talked about the fact that the 2020 budget now shows a $4 billion deficit. What if it's more than that? If you look at the last recession, if, if it's the same, we could be short, you know, somewhere between six and twelve billion dollars over the next uh, over a four-year time period, and we're not doing enough to be prepared for that. Is what mm -hmm. I would say. Just to stay on this idea of strategic investment for one sec, uh, why isn't it a good idea to spend money in good times? You have the money, you know, you can make investments now, so that later on, you know, when you don't have the money, you have the things that really help the city continue well, to grow through. A, a it's downturn. a question of degree. It's a mm -hmm. question of balance. It's not, I mean, you know, some investments are good, but in this case, as you pointed out, investment for the most part means hiring. So you have people. You can't just wave them away. They're on the payroll. They're you're, you're putting in money to the pension fund for them. You're paying for their health insurance for when they retire 10 or 20 years from now that you're still legally obligated to provide. So, you know, investment is not a building necessarily. And in, and in the case of growing programs and adding new programs, you're adding people and you're responsible for those people. And it's very, very difficult for elected officials to then cancel those people. So. Um, okay, moving on to um, Latanya, I wanted to ask, so what the biggest thing that the city council got in the negotiation between the, the, um, the mayor's executive and the adopted was, you know, fair fares was, the, you know, um, I'm forgetting exactly what the number is, but eventually we sort of expect it'll go up to about 200 to $250 million a year. Um, why is it that that's the limit to this program? It seems as if, um, you know, people will sign up in droves to, to ride the subway for free, and, and is this something that really, um, we've thought about the long-term implications of. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll address um, some of the things that Carol said. Um, but with fair fares, it's $106 million mm -hmm. for this fiscal year uh, to start January 1. And then there's a commitment between the council and the administration for that to grow once the program is underway. Um, we initially proposed uh, $212 million on an annual basis. And we said, we'll wait and see. We'll see uh, how many folks sign up, how it works once we implement the program, uh, and then moving for conversations about fiscal 2020, then that could grow. And if it's more than $212 million, then that commitment will be there. Uh, but when we approach the budget, and I wanted to say something about the growth of the budget, um, the, the budget has grown because revenues have grown, which aren't a bad thing, right? It's a matter of when and how will the forecasts actually live up to what is actually coming in. And with each year, there are four financial plans. We make adjustments every year um, as we go along, and we know that there's a projected deficit in 2020. But the council and the administration, we are in sync in that. That's why you have the reserves. That's why we continue to push for the reserves in the last session. Uh, the council pushed for more reserves. In this session, we pushed for reserves. And at the end, in the adopted budget, there was $225 million that went into reserves. So we project uh, about 10% of the city's budget um, we have in reserves. And I think there have been calls for as high as 12 to 14% and so forth. 
I think when you do that, when you're constantly saying we need reserves, we need citywide savings, because the budget is a pie, it's priorities, right? There, I, we think that there's money within the budget to reprioritize and put to other things, and that you don't necessarily have to add more to the budget. So we push on reserves and not just uh, re-estimates. Sorry, Melanie, we, you know, that's what we said in our response, um, that a lot of the savings are savings, but they're re-estimates. Um, and it is tough when there are you know, projected growth in labor and things, and we say, hey, look, let's look at the headcount. Let's look at the vacancies. Um, do we really need the positions? We're for the expansion, for 3K and things like that. Um, but within the process of saying, here are our priorities and fair fair is a good thing, we also say, let's look at the budget more closely. Uh, in the, the time that we've done this, the budget is a process and, and, we, and it's hard to understand I, for the lay person to sometimes look at the budget and go on OMB's website and understand it. Um, but we've worked collaboratively to make the budget much more transparent and say we need more units of appropriation. We need the ability to, to say how um, our agency is spending funds. And we've gotten great cooperation in doing that, but that gets us to this place of being able to say, hey, are we really going to need more money in the future to combat these things? And is, are there resources now to address that? And should we put more in savings? Um, but you can't not take care of the folks that need uh, programs like Fair Fairs now because in three or four years, we may not have those resources. We just have to reprioritize. That's our Do you want to I just wanted to say something about Fair Fairs. Um, that to CBC is an example of a wise investment. When times are good and you have money, and we would say it could have been instead of a lot of other things that are in the budget, but Fair Fairs is not personnel. It's not facilities. It's going to people in the community who can use that fair card to go to work, to take the kids to school, to be participants in the economy and become more contributing to the revenue of the city. And so that is, a, we would say, a very wise investment. Um, you asked, won't it grow? I mean, the estimate that Latanya has done is on the basis of what, how many people are below the federal poverty level and what giving them the cards are. Now, yes, if times get bad, um, there could be more people in that mm -hmm. income level. But again, I would say then you need, it's a stimulus program for people. And that that um, is, a, is, a, is an investment that is definitely worth making. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, yeah. I, Carol and I can probably go on for oh, yeah, debating for hours as we usually do, and they're all healthy and good debates. But I think there are a couple things that uh, Carol said that I wanted to just respond to. And I think we, we can all have debates about the level of reserves and what that should be. We have debates, Preston and I have talked about this as well. But I think from our perspective, we feel that we're in a very good place with the level of reserves that we have. And it is a historical level of reserves. And I think having gone through the Great Recession um, and being in a place where you didn't have that level of reserve and having to make some of the draconian cuts that Carol's talking about um, that I think Preston and Latanya and I actually lived through the implementation of some of that, I think we're in a very good place to buffer ourselves. I do not see our budget growing at such a rapid rate that we're unable to manage within what we control what we're spending on, and as you mentioned, where our revenues are, and we are getting additional revenues coming in. We could be in a place where we got the additional revenue coming in, we chose to spend without savings. 
but here we are continuing to put through savings plans and not simply relying on the fact that we have a reserve and should we not need it, we're taking it down. I think on the re-estimate side, and I will continue to push back on this one too with Latanya as well, re-estimates are re-estimates and they are savings within the budget. Having prior to this role spent a lot of time in the health and social services world where we're able to maximize revenue, that is a good thing. When you're able to say that you're able to generate additional revenue without cutting back on services and you're saving city tax levy dollars, that is a good thing. And so and when we can do that, we will. And on the last point on healthcare and on the, the OPEB and the long-term liability there, Remember that when we're actually doing our labor settlements, we are generating healthcare savings within that. That not only helps with the current cost of the labor settlements in this last round, we've actually capped um, in agreement with the MLC on three and a half percent on growth in fiscal year 19 on our healthcare and three percent in 20 and thereafter. That actually helps us bend the curve for healthcare savings for future retirees. Um, and the other piece I would add to that is it's not just about capping, but in agreement with labor, we're actually coming to the table to say beyond simply capping health insurance costs, how do we move forward and really restructure beyond so that we can generate even future savings beyond just what we have in this labor settlement? Mm -hmm. So it was just a couple points. Do you want to jump Quite in? Aggressive talk, otherwise. Okay. I'll, <laughs> well, I'll just on this. I'm enjoying Sorry, listening. I'm enjoying we're listening. Give you a moment. We apologize. <laughs> on the same topic, I mean, uh, talking about reserves, when, when I talk to people about the budget and ask them their feelings about the reserves, a lot of people will say we need more reserves. But also privately, you know, there's this concern, it seems, that you don't want to show too much money. You don't want to have too much money on hand because then the governor or the federal government looks at New York City and says, you know, hey, you have, you know, two. $5 billion just sitting there, why do you need this money from us? So how do you balance that? Because I know the controller has called for, for more reserves in the city budget. The controller Stringer has absolutely called for more reserves. And um, you, you get to see now on stage the conversations we have amongst ourselves about all these topics. But so uh, I don't know which part to talk about first, the reserves of the state. But let me start with the reserves. So I think, you, you know, we've... A few years ago, when Controller Stringer was first controller, we came up with this measure of sort of the state of the city's um, uh, fiscal situation called the budget cushion. We shorthand the budget cushion. But the reality is, and that, and that number's been misused, the reality is, is that if you look right now at sort of what is available for this year or for next year in terms of reserves, you have about $4 billion. You have the budgeted reserves plus the amount of the retiree health benefit trust that you could use in the given year. Next year's gap is $4 billion. In 2009, when the uh, revenue, tax revenues fell 7%, that's the equivalent today of another $4 billion. So we're sort of, and that's not a prediction, but it's just a measure of kind of where we are in terms of the available funds um, to cover the gap that exists and if there was a larger gap than that, that would be uh, have to be met somehow also. So then there's the question, and Melanie and I have had conversations about this, of, you know, as you say, putting more money aside makes it look like a fat, juicy target. Um, you know, when the state, ha state has its own challenges because it is much more reliant on volatile set of income and sales taxes, basically, than, than doesn't have the property tax stabilizer that the city has. When the state has gotten into trouble, it historically has seen uh, the city as a uh, place where it could go to help balance its budget. 
Um, you know, years ago we used to get part of a big chunk of money called aid and incentives to municipalities. That's been long gone. Last year, as Melanie noted, they shifted about $300 million on a kind of ongoing basis and the subway action plan funds onto the city. And that was when times were relatively good. Uh, so I, I think we definitely, you know, we need to find a better way forward here because I, you know, we're very well, well aware here in our office at least that our fortunes rise and fall together. And we see it every day with NYCHA, with the subway system, with H&H, &H, and with the general sort of outlook on the budget. So, um, you know, there are definitely a set of vulnerabilities there that still exist while, even while times are good that I think, you know, the controller has said repeatedly we need to just be better prepared for. Mm -hmm. Could I yeah, sure, please. just one thing yeah. about this discussion about the reserves and how much is enough? Melanie is saying the budget is $89 billion. We would say it's 92 because it, it's, it's not just a, an accounting argument. The amount that will be spent or is planned to be spent is $92 billion. The reason that we say the budget is 89 is because we're going to carry over money we didn't spend from the prior year. But if you're looking at the picture of what you need to pay the bills for the year, assuming you don't accrue more money, it's $92 billion. We have a, a billion two fifty in official reserves, and then we have this historic $4 billion plus in the retiree pen of bill. That's $5 billion on a $92 billion budget. That's not very much money, okay? It's just not. It may be historic, but it's not, it's not enough. And I would, I would commend to all of you an infographic that I remembered CBC did in 2014 when the Retiree Health Benefit Trust was reduced to zero because we were getting through the recession. And I had it posted on our website today. I commend it to all of you to look at it. It's a cartoon version that shows you over the four years, 2010 to 2014, how the budget gaps were covered every year, how much came from carrying over money from the prior year, and how slowly but surely, because we weren't getting that much revenue and we weren't having enough to carry over, we had to take the money out of the retiree benefit trust every year, and that one was at a historic 3.5 billion, and then it went down to zero. Now. Yes, um, the city, the council, and the mayor together are to be commended for building it back up. But it's not a lot of reserves when you're talking about almost $100 billion in expenses. And yes, it, you know, if, if there's a bad time, the governor is going to be in trouble too, and maybe in more trouble because, as Preston says, they don't have the property tax at the state level. But, you know, because you're in a strategic battle with the governor is not a reason not to protect yourself. It's really not. I mean, oh, the governor will want the money, therefore we should spend it all now. That does not really sound like prudent planning for New York City to me. I wanted to um, ask you, Melanie, just um, on this topic of the, the governor or really Albany in general, I mean, you know, like I said earlier, it was the um, president who was presented in the beginning of 2017 as sort of the boogeyman that's really going to wreak havoc on the city's budget. Um, but, you know, in this last year, we, you know, the president was a kind of net positive, a bizarre and, and short-term net positive for the city, and it was Albany that was the true sort of um, a bad actor when it came to, or was really harmful when it came to the city's budget. And I wonder, 
you know, how does that look from your perspective, and what can you, uh, what can you do as, as a budget director to try and um, mitigate that or, or prevent it in the future, well, if anything? First, let me say that it's not about whether it's you know the state dollar or federal dollar matters more. Both of them matter very equally when it comes to factoring in what's happening with our budget. And I think that for a while we were very concerned about what was going to happen to Dish. Um, Dish funding, I see our Greater New York uh, folks here and who are very helpful in advocating for that, was, is a big chunk of what goes into health and hospitals budget. And we were facing upwards of $300 million in cuts there. And it wasn't until we got the two-year extension, mind you, at the same time, health and hospitals also had contingency planning within their budget to take actions in the event that they didn't get it. But that was also very touching, though, until we got it. And even though it's an extension for two years, we still have to plan as if two years, it will no longer be here. And how do we continue on um, making sure that health and hospitals is financially sound, which they are. Um, I think at the state budget level, you know, as we said, there were significant cuts and cost shifts. I think one of the, the notes that Preston pointed out was what the impact was for the subway action plan. And I think we have been consistently calling for the fact, as has actually the controller most recently, that we need dedicated revenue sources for that. It can't come at the cost of city services. And it can't come at the cost of pointing to the fact that we do have reserves. As Carol points out, rightfully so, reserves are for a time when you actually have an economic downturn. You want to make sure that you have sufficient reserves. We're going to agree to disagree on the level of reserves that are sufficient but you have that, and I think that's what we can do, which is buffer for that, as well as continue to call upon the fact that we need a dedicated revenue source. Mm -hmm. And I will say, on the fact of the reserves, and we've gone, you know, Carol calls it what, it is a prepay, technically, from the city's perspective. Our, our credit agencies, our rating agencies, call it an operating surplus. But that is not a bad thing. It is not a bad thing to have, and continually have, an operating surplus, as the rating agencies call it, and actually, point to it as one of the reasons why New York City has such a high credit rating the high, you know, of our bonds. And so this year marks the, the highest we've had, um, but it is a tradition to have a prepayment that's done, or some call it an operating surplus. It's not a new concept. Right, right. Um, just on the idea of having some sort of dedicated funding stream for the MTA, um, the mayor's preferred um, uh, proposal is a tax on millionaires. Um, and, you know, Carol, I think you've been um, not supportive of this, but there's been studies, I think there's one in 2016 that really looked at, you know, 13 years of um, you know, census data and other sorts of tax data at places where um, there had been a millionaire's tax and did the millionaires actually flee those areas? And what, what they found on the margin, some people did leave, but in, in general, it didn't have an effect of displacing the very rich. So what is the reason to oppose something uh, that would generate funds um, for the MTA and, you know, wouldn't drive away uh, the very wealthy? Well, first of all, I think in general, um, relying on any changes in the personal income tax and earmarking them specifically for something is, is dangerous because it is the most volatile source of revenue. And when the economy is good, there's more income. And when the economy is not, it plummets. So if you're really depending on it to do something like support the operations of the MTA or its capital plan or both, it's in general not the most reliable source. But I would say right now that talking about imposing higher taxes on high-income people, when this, the federal government, when the Trump administration has adopted a policy of limiting the amount of state and local tax that people can deduct from their federal income tax is really foolhardy, okay? People are now, it was done on purpose, but 
and whether we like the reason or not, it <laughs> happened. And New York City has 50,000 people who earn over $500,000 a year and pay 50% of the income tax in New York City. So if you lose, you know, 1% of them, you lose about $100 million. Every, so, and this is a new thing that's happened, is that this could be the last straw of people leaving. We don't know yet because we have to wait and see whether it affects tax returns and it would affect the state and the city. But I think when people are looking at this and their accountants are telling them what to do, you may like it or not like it, but as the governor has said, that we, I certainly, I'm sure, share the view of everyone in this room that we live and work in the greatest city in the world, but other places are habitable. And if it gets <laughs> to a certain point, you, you just move your residence. And so I think even talking about this makes people feel like, oh, it's just going to get worse and worse and we can't deduct it. It's one thing if people can deduct these things. So I just think this is a tenuous thing, time, for adding to the personal income tax. And I think we all agree that the congestion pricing proposal is, is the most reliable and most appropriate way to, to add more funds to the industry. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't want to get into, down that rabbit hole right now, but I do want to uh, stay on this idea of the attractiveness of the city. And we had this, um, you know, the investment firm, Alliance Bernstein, that, that left, I think it was about 1,000 jobs that went to Nashville. And I think a lot of people in New York City who are, I grew up in the city, so I think, why would you move to Nashville? I've never been there, but I, it's hard to imagine. <laughs> um, but you know, there are these smaller cities are becoming more urban, becoming more sort of, um, the amenities are more like the kinds of things that you might find in, in Brooklyn. Um, and you know, how, uh, and so it isn't as much of a, 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 um, a hard ask to say, you know, we're going to, into this smaller city, you know, come, and it was said to me that they can attract people at a city like Nashville, from places like Chicago, from Atlanta, that may not be comfortable moving to, to New York. And so I guess I'll ask you, Preston, just because uh, um, you're over there. Um, how <laughs> how would you, reasons, how concerned should we be about the effect of, of um, both the, the salt um, uh, changes and the, um, the other difficulties that have kind of come up in the city, the transit um, um, woes and sort of, you know, you ride on the subway and you think you really have to make an effort to be in this city right now, and there are so many things that keep us here, but you know, on balance, are we getting to a point where some people are going to decide to go, and what does that do to our revenues? I, I, I think it's worth noting that since the end of the recession, 500,000 or so more people have decided it's worth living in New York. Um, we've added 800,000 jobs, Melanie, we're at the highest level of jobs in the city that we've ever been at. So, I, you know, New York has been wildly successful, um, and other places, you know, there's the attraction, as you noted, of urban areas now, and other places have been successful, but, you know, given the challenges, we've held our own remarkably well, I think, where I think there are a couple of, so let me talk about the salt deduction. I, you know, I, I think I would agree that I don't, I don't think that an incremental tax on millionaires is probably going to, you know, cause everybody to move to Florida tomorrow. So that said, I think what I really worry about with respect to the deduction, uh, the cap on the deductibility of state and local taxes is really sort of those middle and upper middle income taxpayers who now see their taxes going up and um, who, for whom it is, that is actually sort of material. That makes it harder to recruit some of those people. And that's a little bit behind the Alliance Bernstein decision also about, you know, the, the incremental rate of tax here on people who made pretty good 
uh, earn pretty good livings. That said, the real challenge here in this city from our success is the affordability for the uh, people at the lowest end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. and I think that's most obvious in the area of housing and rents. Um, we've seen rent increases that are way outstripped. You know, most of our jobs that we've added in the last decade have been uh, in health and uh, social services and education. They're not the highest paying jobs. And we've added plenty of professional and business and technical services and high paying jobs as well, but most of them have been lower paying, those people have not seen their wages grow anything close to as fast as the increase in rents. And that's created a real affordability crisis. And housing is the biggest single element of that. And I think that, that is probably our biggest challenge going forward. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go? Sure. Yeah, I just wanted to say something on the, the state uh, debate. One of the things that we continue to push for and we have not seen is, is the state really funding C, uh, the CFE uh, decision the way that it should and so I the council has been in agreement uh, with the administration in pushing for what's due to New York City by the state and, and it would make a big difference in how we look at education foundation aid um, in the overall budget um, one of the things that we did get and worked on together was the fair student funding and so New York City can't wait right for that to happen in order to pump more resources to schools, but if there was a, a, an obligation on the state to actually really fund CFE the way that it should, then I think that would go a long way. So I wanted to make that point. Okay. Um, I'm just add that sure. the, the tax, it is complicated. It is going to be in a long time before we really are able to suss out what the impacts are. I mean, I think having gone through just this past pan cycle where we saw it was not only the fact that we had the one-time increase in the personal income tax was not just a result of the Trump tax impact, but that of you know the 2008 repatriation that happened. Um, and so there's a lot to really go through and we will see some of that and be able to suss out what that was when the next October comes or this October and we'll see what the tax returns look like. But I think it's gonna be some time before we see what the impact is and I would agree with on that front, I don't think we're going to see people flee the city in, in droves, but I think it's hard to really, and I think everyone is saying this, you know, economists as well, for us to see really what the implications are down the road for this. Um, I wanted to ask about the property tax uh, reform that's um, sort of being proposed, and everyone wants to do something about property taxes, and it seems like the, the agreement um, that at least the um, uh, City Hall has sort of well, at least uh, put out there is that um, it would be revenue neutral, that there wouldn't be a change in how much money comes into the city. That's very clear. It's the budget director. It should Second. be very revenue neutral. Very, okay. <laughs> um, so what that, what that means, though, is that some people there will be winners and losers in this, and that you will have some people that pay a lot more and some people that pay a lot less. And so places like Staten Island may see their um, property tax bill go down. People on the Upper West Side might see their property tax bill go up. And that may be the way it should be and as a question of fairness. But I guess what I want to ask all you, uh, everyone on the panel, is just sort of um, how this property tax reform will take shape and what effect that could have on the overall budget, even given that we present it as a, this will be revenue neutral when it's when it rolls out. Well, I mean, sense? the whole point of us uh, announcing the commission, you know, I, I, I'm an ex officio one, Latanya sits on the commission as well, was that we actually want to come up with a proposal. I think from our perspective, we've laid out clearly that revenue neutrality is one of them. Um, the mayor has said repeatedly that we want to tax a property tax that is more transparent than it is now and that is you know fairer than it is now 
and I think that these are all the goals that the commission is really tackling with. They've just started that process. Um, I think they're very much in the beginning stages of it, and I think, you know, speculating, you know, what they're going to develop it would be the whole point of the commission is to actually come up with a proposal. Mm -hmm. All right, the, the property taxes have been the third rail for a very long time. Um, and the commission is doing its work when we put out the, uh, the budget response um, after the preliminary budget. We, at the time, had called for a rebate. As you know, several years ago, the city had a rebate. In the end, we agreed to have a commission so that we can look at this. And um, we've had our first meeting as an ex-officio member. I don't speak on behalf of the commission. Uh, formally, there is a website for you to go to. Um, but we're going to have borough-wide hearings starting in September and hear from everyone and, and work over the next few months to come out with a proposal. But it needs state legislation. I think that's what's always been the, the difficult thing, mm -hmm. right? And, and we know that there are a lot of uh, things that need to be improved and a lot of opinions on it. And so you have to do the work. And it's, it's not an easy thing, but we're venturing out. Do we know when we'll have a plan that people can see? No. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to talk a little bit, or have you guys weigh in on the issues at NYCHA. It came up when you were talking about the capital plan a little bit, Melanie. But um, So the city's entered into an agreement to pay about a billion dollars extra over four years. Um, that could be ongoing if a judge decides. But there was this moment at the um, hearing uh, in front of the judge when this uh, um, was being discussed, and it didn't seem like he was altogether convinced that that would be enough. And as we know, the NYCHA's um, uh, capital needs are extraordinary. They're, you know, either as much or more than what the MTA needs. And, you know, if anyone uh, has been in public housing recently, as, as I have, you see just how um, bad certain people's apartments really are. And so I just, uh, you know, are we, um, it, how are we going to solve this problem essentially without, you know, spending the necessary money? Are we really, look, is the public-private partnership model the only way to, to fix this problem? Could I start? Sure. We just wrote a report about this in which we basically agreed with the end of your question that mm -hmm. we have to rethink NYCHA and um, it requires as much money according to its own needs assessment in, in investment in the apartments and in the buildings as the MTA needs, uh, which serves the entire metropolitan area and is a huge amount of money that we can't come up with a way to fund. So. Um, it needs to be rethought. The city, even though it's supposed to be a federal program, is de facto kind of the last resort res responsible party because we care about it. And I have a feeling that, as you imply, in November, Melanie will be having to modify the amount of money that has been allocated because we keep finding new things that need to be fixed. Um, but in our analysis, it showed that you can't really keep up with it's, it's some of the, the buildings have gone down so far that it's really not going to be worth spending money on fixing the apartments. It would be better to put that money into new units somewhere and that the way to do this is to get private investment on the empty space that's in the area of the buildings, build new housing, put seniors, move some people from the NYCHA units who may have bigger apartments than they really need at this point and reconfigure so that um, we are more a steward than we are a landlord. Mm -hmm. And that that is really what we need to recognize. And it's what most housing authorities in the country have done a long time ago. Mm -hmm. 
Is there, Latanya, is there a council view on this? I actually don't know. I'm asking just for my... Well, there's been a lot of attention from the city council on NYCHA, and as Carol mentioned, it, there just seems to be issue after issue that comes up. So we're going to continue to be uh, vigilant, um, whether it's on lead or mold or... Um, one of the things we did push for is to... Uh, we asked the administration to push up its capital plan on NYCHA. There was a 10-year plan um, for NYCHA, for roofs and so forth. We said, let's push that timeline up, and they agreed to do that. There's a lot of attention on NYCHA, and um, we will continue to press on it uh, in oversight hearings and just meetings on the budget and so forth, and, and we'll see what happens. But it, it's, a, it's a big lift. Mm -hmm. uh, no controller has issued as many audits <laughs> on NYCHA as Controller Stringer has. I mean, we, he has spent a tremendous amount of time looking at the management uh, on any number of issues. Um, and really, I think, was one of the people who was instrumental in uh, sort of revealing the magnitude of the problem of the heat failures this winter. Um, you, you know, we, we need, as you say, we need to come up with some creative ways. I don't have a particular you know, set of solutions to lay out right now. One idea that the controller has put forward is we have some surplus funds that flow to the city uh, from Battery Park City. And those, that money could be used for NYCHA. That's a proposal that he has floated repeatedly in the last couple of years. So I think that's an area that, you know, it won't solve the whole problem, but we, we have to start throwing everything we've got into the mix here for that. Right, right. I wanted to ask, uh, too, about homelessness. So we've, you know, obviously um, the issue has really come up uh, during this mayor's term. It wasn't created by him by any means. He's vowed to get out of um, these so-called cluster sites, which are, you know, um, homeless uh, housing within apartment buildings, and he's, um, for the most part, made good on that. At the same time, the pace of building new shelters, as he's promised, hasn't really kept up. And so what we have is a situation where we're spending a lot of money housing the homeless in hotels, which is quite expensive for the city. And so I guess I'd ask Melanie or anyone else who wants to weigh in sort of, you know, is that a sort of prudent um, uh, idea? And then how long are we going to be in the situation where we're spending, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to house the homeless every night in, in hotels? So I, I think it's important to just to give a, a little bit of context here about where we are. So the first thing is that if you look at um, this past year to year, on average across the year, the census has actually been level, um, mm -hmm. and that hasn't happened in over a decade. And so that really speaks to the fact that the census is actually stabilizing, and I think the work that we've done and I, Commissioner Banks has really done to really stabilize the system overall. At the same time, when we announced the turning the tide plan, we've always talked about that as being a, a long-term mm -hmm. plan. It wasn't that we were going to make investments that suddenly would actually have an, you know, turn the tide immediately. And you were correct in that the goal initially with the plan is to get out of clusters, they were unsafe, and use hotels as the bridge to that. And as shelters come on board, because their hotels, as you've noted, are costly, your costs start to come down. This last plan cycle, we did make investments into the shelter system. We believe this is, and I've said this, many of my hearings being questioned by the council that this is the last significant investment on that front. And at the same time, we're also moving to restructure our rental subsidy program. And if you look at the placements of families in particular out of shelter, they are high really speaks to the effort that has been put in to move outs. 
And as we move to actually streamline the subsidy program even further, we anticipate that those numbers will actually increase as well. So this has never been a, you know, we're going to, the mayor has been very clear about not fixing the problem tomorrow, that this is a long-term strategy that we believe is actually starting to pay off with the stabilization of the system, move out to increasing, and again, once we actually um, get the streamlining in place, you'll actually see the move out to continue to go up. We're almost done, but I do want to ask one sort of very broad question, which is given, as I started by saying, um, you know, the, the mayors that urge people to go read the budget for themselves, but often it's hard to parse what's in there. You know, what do you think in the city budget deserves more attention, uh, at least in this uh, fiscal year 19, and what do, you, what do you think gets lost about the city budget when the media covers, uh, covers it? Melanie, you could start. Maybe each of you could do something very quickly. I'm just <laughs> Too much attention. <laughs> <laughs> Too much um, attention? Um, what do we miss? I think, well, actually, what I really appreciated when you um, did your introduction was that oftentimes there's, there is just not an acknowledgement about the fact that there is the cost of actually operating the city. I find that a lot of times as I'm in city council hearings, I'm pointing out that there's things in the budget that are just, we have, you know, we have to operate, we have a snow budget. We have to, by charter mandate, have to provide, and as that formula goes up, we have to add money. The agencies have infrastructure needs, whether it's the police department that needs, has IT infrastructure needs, those are real critical needs that actually have to be funded. And I think oftentimes we talk about it in a broader context and point to one initiative, but not looking holistically at the fact that the city, in fact, right, there are just the cost of operating um, governments and providing services to city residents, and there's just built-in costs within that as well. So the councilsmen, hundreds of hours between the preliminary budget hearings and the executive budget hearings listening. Uh, and I spend hundreds of hours along with many other commissioners <laughs> testifying not at the hundreds, hearings. Not hundreds, not hundreds, <laughs> but more, yes, more than in the past. Um, and, and we listen to commissioners and we listen to agencies and, and we listen to everyday New Yorkers. And what you realize is that everyone takes in the budget differently, right? So we hear a lot about trash pickups and that there's not enough in my district or we, you know, hear about youth services, which was a, a very big deal for the council and pushing for more uh, summer youth employment jobs um, or more funding for education that go directly to schools. And, and so I, you know, we live and breathe and eat the budget every day. Um, and yes, there's this big number, I'll round up to $90 billion, maybe not 89.2. <laughs> Um, 89.1. Every right, my own peril, right? Exactly. Um, but I think we we have to remember that in that budget, what we do impacts people's everyday lives, and that if it's for more funding for the subways, right, or um, affordable housing, which there is not enough of, uh, the budget breathes and lives through New York City. And so our job is to ensure that beyond sort of the pension obligations down the line or um, the, the big labor contracts, which are all very important and, and to understand all of those things, that people need things that are tangible in the budget when we pass it that they can say, all right, my time and effort to come in and talk to my council members or to call the mayor or to do that made a difference in, in my life right now. Um, and you have to balance that. And we have to talk about reserves and 
the possible recession downturns and things like that, but we need to prioritize things in the budget that will have an impact like fair fares right now. And that balance is what we're always looking for. Uh, and so throughout the process, by the time we get to an adopted budget, we feel like we've achieved that when we can say we did things to ensure fiscal stability, but you know, in a month or so, the contracts for these organizations are going to move forward that keep services in your neighborhood. And I think that's in the years that I've worked on the budget, that's been the most important thing that you can see how the things that we do actually impact people every day. So, yeah, I'm, when I held Latonya's job, you know, that we were very, you know, being talking to council members every day about the budget keeps you very focused on what the budget means concretely in people's communities, and that's a great thing. Um, one of the things that just as someone who's looked at the budget for almost 20 years now, uh, I think is missing is any con any narrative at all about the programs in the budget, what they do, what they accomplish, how much we're spending. It's even worse in the capital budget. You know, I, I dare anyone to figure out how many how much we're spending on street repaving in the coming year and how much it costs per lane mile of street repaved. I, I promise you, you have no idea. Um, and it's true also throughout the expense budget, which is part of why the controller directed me earlier this year to create these agency watch lists for certain agencies to really start to sort of say, like, what are we, we're spending money here, what are we getting? Because it's not obvious. So to me, the sort of incorporation of narrative and performance into the budget is, um, would make a huge step in the direction of really being able to understand better for people this budget that is the fifth largest in the country, that is more diverse in its array of services than any government, uh, governmental budget in the country besides the federal government, and that is funded by revenue sources that are more diverse than any single uh, general purpose government in the country. Um, not an easy thing to wrap your head around, and it's made harder by the way that it's presented. I'm going to change what I was going to say, which is that people don't pay attention to the capital budget because it doesn't have the same legal requirements. And, but I agree with Preston that we should be paying more attention to what we call performance measures um, in both the capital and the, the operating budget. Yes, Latanya La and Mel both talk about the need for citizens to feel like they are getting things from the budget. Well, do they realize that we're spending $75,000 a year per family in the shelters? Or that the average city employee costs us $140,000 a year compared to what they're earning? We don't present it um, in a way where people really understand what their tax dollars are going to per service, per mile of road, um, and we need to have more performance measures that people can connect to what their budgets and their programs are actually costing and paying for. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Do you want to add something? Uh, I'll put it so I'm, I'm, I'm just going to ask one quick question. Latanya, you mentioned investing now for things that are going to benefit in the future. The census coming our way. $90 billion the state of California just devoted towards trying to get an act, or at least it's in their budget. Melanie, when you think about the census and what's proper allocation given all of the money that's at stake potentially, 
is that big on your list? And how do you guys think about allocation? And I'd ask you to do it in a minute because then we get to send everybody home. Well, I will say that the census and making sure that we have um, as many people turn out and get counted is a big concern in the state of the city. The mayor, the mayor actually talked about this um, and we made a very modest, small investment, um, but we'll have a big impact in actually getting people to come out because of the implications of what it means for our funding. Is that quick enough for you? Uh, well, thank you all. Thank you, David. I'm grateful for our panelists for coming out today. Enjoy the rest of the summer. Bye.